Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch, Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, show number 145 for us. Um, we're going to start at the top of, of the show with the terrible violence that has been taking place, not just recently, not even this year, but in fact for decades around the province of Nagorno-Karabakh um, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, Prashant, tell us what's been happening uh, most recently in Armenia and Azerbaijan. Well, like you said, of course, it's a decades-old conflict. Uh, in fact, uh, has its roots even before the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And even in the uh, late 80s, this conflict was very much there, pretty much centered around this region called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is uh, part of Azerbaijan, but uh, dominated by the uh, ethnic Armenian community who are definitely in a majority over there. And we've had, <clears throat> I mean, while growing up, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict was something you heard about, often uh, talked about as one of the ethnic conflicts uh, of the world. Uh, multiple ceasefires taking place. There was one war in the 90s, then there were continuous conflicts. In 2020, there was an all-out uh, fight that uh, war that took place as well. And the re most recent element, of course, is the fact that last week, Azerbaijan launched what is what they called a military operation. And uh, at that point, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was functioning as a de facto republic, it was uh, called the Republic of Artsakh, but not recognized anywhere, but it had its own uh, government, so to speak, and its authorities. Basically, uh, at some point, uh, they decided to dissolve themselves, and there's been this huge uh, migration or uh, fleeing exodus of ethnic Armenians out of that region back into Armenia. Now, what is really over the past many years also uh, sort of compounded the situation is that the entire region has become yet another site of what is clearly a massive geopolitical conflict between uh, Russia and the West. Both sides clearly sort of, uh, you know, trying to establish hegemony over the region. And it's not just Russia and the West. Turkey is a vital player there, has been a very powerful uh, supporter of uh, Azerbaijan. Iran has its own interests over there. So that whole region has become quite a hotspot. And what is if uh, it's important to note that in 2020, when the war took place, it concluded with a ceasefire by which Russian peacekeepers were there under the uh, auspices of what is called the CST, or the Collective Security Organization, which is a combination of Russia and a couple of other countries in the region. Now, what has happened over the past uh, few, uh, past some time is that Armenia has, in fact, moved far more closer to the ambit of the West, and that is definitely sending alarm bells uh, ringing in Russia. In fact, there seems to have been some kind of an agreement which actually ends the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh because Nagorno-Karabakh is now effectively completely under Azerbaijan. But on the uh, but that is also alongside that what has also happened is that uh, what do you call uh, the Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashpashnyan has sort of blamed Russia for not being able to take care of that you know handle that issue for not being able to maintain peace etc. And is presenting that as a justification to sort of move closer towards the West. And uh, as you can definitely sort of guess. Uh, USAID, Samantha Power, along with the Assistant Secretary of State in the United States, I believe her name is Yuri Kim, were both there in Armenia last week as well, conducted negotiations. There has been a lot. There was another meeting which took place 
uh, along on the on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly as well. We have an article from former Ambassador M.K. Bhatrakumar on that on our side, all of which talk about an expanding U.S. presence in the region. Uh, the possibility of you know the collaboration now has largely been framed in some sense in, in an economic sense. There's been talking about there's been talk about cooperation around minerals. There's been some talk about cooperation cooperation around security, etc. But all of this sort of uh, is definitely a precursor for what could be uh, what could be far more security collaboration on this issue as well. So this region now becoming a very vital point in that larger sort of for lack of a better word, game that is take, taking place in Eurasia as well. Uh, you know, what is the US and Western strategy? Are they trying to sort of bring uh, Armenia closer, into, uh, very much into the EU ambit? Of course, I, I don't know how long membership or what are the questions about that. But definitely intensified cooperation is very much on the agenda. There have been quite a few summits on that count. And, you know, what this will bring to that region, which is already just has a history of intense conflict, is, uh, you know, it is both interesting in some ways, also pretty alarming as well. So while on the face of it, this is in some senses a very, uh, uh, I, I don't know if the resolution is the right word for it because there is so many people who had to leave their homes, there's been an exodus. But while Nagorno-Karabakh, the legality of Nagorno-Karabakh itself might be for the time being settled, this is definitely the beginning of what is another round of uh, intense, intense contestation in that area. Russia does have a base in Armenia as well. So there's going to be a lot of push, pushing and pulling in that region. And definitely the West is going to see this as another front against Russia. So I would say very complicated times ahead uh, for that region as a whole. Another situation of uh, uh, two countries used to be part of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, part of the fallout of the collapse of, of that project. Um, well, you know, the United States has been trying for decades, Zoe, to collapse another project, and that's the Cuban Revolution. Um, there's been some disturbing news and interesting news from the United States. Attack on an embassy, on the other hand, the greatest, um, you know, enemy of the Cuban Revolution seems to be in trouble. What's happening in the United States regarding Cuba? Well, on the night of Sunday, September 24th, uh, the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. was attacked with uh, two Molotov cocktails. Um, this was immediately denounced across social media and uh, in press statements by the Cuban foreign ministry um, as a terrorist attack. They called on U.S. authorities to take appropriate measures to protect the embassy um, and to get to the bottom of who was behind this attack. This attack. And uh, it's interesting, and, the, and Cuban officials pointed out um, that this is not the first attack that they've suffered, and especially against this embassy. In 2020, uh, an individual of Cuban-American origin um, fired an AK-47 against uh, and shot up uh, the, the front of this embassy. Thankfully, in neither of these attacks was anyone injured, um, but it really calls into question, um, what does it mean to be considered sort of an enemy of the United States, yet have uh, diplomatic um, installations in that country? Um, we know the example of Venezuela, for example, uh, the, the embassies that were taken over by the far right and put in complete, uh, you know, destruction. The, the, the Venezuelan um, consulate in New York City is deteriorating and abandoned. Um, and uh, Cuban officials in this case called on U.S. officials to condemn this act as an act of terrorism, saying if the same thing happened to U.S. embassy anywhere in the world, 
there would be no question, no question in calling this an act of terrorism. In fact, uh, we know what happens when there's any sort of attack on a U.S. embassy. Um, and uh, it took a couple of days, but um, the U.S. State Department pronounced and uh, condemned the attack on the, on the uh, Cuban embassy. They have not yet classified it as a terrorist attack and said it's under investigation. Um, but again, this has really... Um, it's interesting that this happened just one day after uh, the event, which you, Vijay, were uh, participating in, Voices of Dignity, wherein the president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, addressed around 800 young people, uh, people of diverse backgrounds from diverse organizations from the United States who listened to him, to the foreign minister of Venezuela, speaking about the impact of U.S. sanctions, the impact of U.S. policy, and above all, emphasizing that uh, they actually have a lot of will and desire to have good relations with the people of the United States. So uh, many say that this uh, attack on the embassy was in retaliation um, to the very successful week that Cuba actually had at the UN in New York. Um, over 40 countries actually in their statements and their addresses to the UN General Assembly uh, condemned the US blockade of Cuba. And we know that usually around November, beginning of November, there's a vote, uh, a resolution uh, calling for an end to this illegal blockade. Uh, so once again, the U.S. is isolating itself with this horrible policy. And as you mentioned, Vijay, that one of the largest, one of the biggest enemies of the Cuban revolution, Bob Menendez, who is a Democratic, repeat, Democratic senator from New Jersey, just over the river over here, um, he was indicted on bribery and corruption charges, um, which may be uh, related to Egyptian authorities. So, you know, he, he leaves no stone unturned when it, when it comes to uh, being against the people. Um, and he has been one of the most vocal opponents to easing any sort of restrictions on Cuba. He has a great ally in, famous, in the infamous Marco Rubio. Um, he's opposed, for example, um, trying to loosen any of the sanctions that were put on additionally from, uh, by Donald Trump. Uh, he is one of the most vocal proponents of keeping Cuba on the state sponsors of terrorism list. Um, he, is, he no longer is sitting as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, but he has said that he refuses to resign. And he even uh, used the excuse that because he's traumatized from being Cuban-American and the, the atrocities that his family suffered uh, when they were forced to flee the Cuban revolution, uh, he had these stores of uh, uh, thousands, thousands of dollars. And of course, uh, his family left Cuba under uh, the Batista dictatorship before the revolution triumphed. So once again, just a you know, a whole pile of lies to, to justify, um, again, a very unjust policy. So we'll see what happens in the coming days. He's facing calls from many of his peers to resign. So we'll be following that. It's a very important situation um, down south from Cuba in Venezuela and, of course, north of Cuba and Miami. There's another dramatic story in play. A, a special envoy of the Venezuelan government is sitting in a federal prison in Miami and has been there for a very long time. His name is Alex Saab. Um, it's an interesting story, and I want to take some time to actually tell the story of the Alex Saab case. But first, the reason we're talking about it is because two UN special envoys, Elena Duhan, the special rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures, who had written previously a very important report on Venezuela and Livingston Savaniana, who's an independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order. The two of them have released a 
a report on the Alex Saab case in their capacity as uh, United Nations um, special rapporteurs. It's an important document because it asks for the United States to immediately release Mr. Saab and to comply with its obligations under international law and drop all charges against Mr. Saab. This phrase, drop all charges, is from the UN independent rapporteurs. Now, what is the case against Mr. Alex Saab? First, it's important to know that in April of 2018, the Venezuelan government appointed Alex Saab as the special envoy to go on missions to Iran to secure humanitarian deliveries of food and medicine. Well, um, this is as a consequence of, in a sense, a tight um, suffocation of Venezuela by U.S. policy, what others have called the hybrid war against Venezuela. Mr. Saab was, you know, uh, was charged by the government of Caracas, the capital of Venezuela, to be the envoy to go to Iran. Um, well, Mr. Saab, you know, went to Iran. Um, he was placed at the same time under U.S. sanctions. Um, these are the unilateral sanctions of the United States government. Um, they place sanctions saying that there is corruption involved in the CLAP program, which is the program the Venezuelan government has to feed people who cannot get food because of the sanctions. I mean, it's a curiosity. Here's the U.S. government punishing a Venezuelan national for trying to help the Venezuelan people survive from unilateral U.S. Um, coercive measures against the people of Venezuela. It's a strange story. Well, what happened was in June of 2020, during his third trip to Iran, Mr. Alex Saab went into transit in Cabo Verde um, in order to return uh, home to Venezuela. In Cabo Verde, Mr. Saab was arrested. Now, the United States immediately filed an extradition um, warrant to bring Mr. Saab to the United States. Um, at the time, Mr. Saab and his lawyers appealed to the Cabo Verde government against the extradition, asking, you know, through their appeals to go back to the court and so on. Um, the Cabo Verde government actually didn't honor the request for appeals. And Mr. Saab was um, extradited to the United States in October 2021. Now, this is important. What the um, what the special rapporteurs say is that he his uh, request for appeals were not honored by the Cabo Verde government. Um, you know, there was a red, there was, when he was arrested at Amilcar Cabral International Airport, at that time, there was no red notice by Interpol for the arrest. In other words, on what basis was Mr. Saab arrested? And then most strikingly, um, of the seven counts of money laundering that the United States had placed against him, they decided to drop all of them and maintain a single count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Um, what the experts say is for two years, he has been sitting in a, um, in a prison cell, most likely in the federal detention center in Miami, and he has not been uh, you know, tried for anything. Uh, meanwhile, all the cases, all the reasons for his extradition have been withdrawn, except a case for a conspiracy to commit money laundering. So they have tried to raise um, this issue with the United States and said it's about time that this man is released because, after all, even you have dropped your cases against him. Uh, why are you holding him? 
conspiracy to commit money laundering at least there should be a hearing on that trial this is a miscarriage of justice a very interesting report from the united nations on the alex sab case also reflecting on the nature of the unilateral coercive measures used by the united states against against the pe people of venezuela um you're listening to give the people what they want brought to you by people's dispatch zoe prashant i'm vijay from globe trotter we're going to move on from venezuela across the gulf again now back to mexico where there's an anniversary of a very sad event that took place in ayotzi napa um zoe take us to that story well uh on september 26th it was the 9 year anniversary of the forcible disappearance of the 43 students from um guerrero mexico um they were students at the rural teachers college um and on this day september 26th uh there was a horrible uh essentially massacre of these uh, 43 students they were forcibly disappeared and since that day um the survivors and their family members and human rights organizations have been tirelessly uh fighting uh for the truth in this case um at the time Enrique Peña Nieto was president of Mexico um someone who has who faces a, many many different um charges of corruption of links with criminal groups and uh one of the key things that Enrique Peña Nieto did to really respond to the overwhelming wave of uh demands for justice demands for accountability um because in this crime when the 43 students were disappeared there was clear involvement of uh local authorities of police um and the major accusation is is the involvement of the national army in this crime in collusion with drug trafficking groups and so what Enrique Peña Nieto did is uh say that there was an investigation that this is the historic truth about what happened saying that the drug cartel can uh confuse them for members of another cartel and that they um disappeared them and disintegrated their bodies in acid um and that that was what happened case closed uh and this has been a constant struggle and a battle um by the family members by human rights organizations again by the survivors to kind of refute this truth because again Enrique Peña Nieto was essentially attempting to just push the blame onto these lower level uh authorities uh and of course cover up the involvement of both his government um the local government and uh the national army and so since then uh there's been this long struggle and one of the major promises of Andrés Manuel López Obrador when he uh began his time as president is that he would help these families and help the people get um the truth in this case uh and so on the anniversary um the subsecretary of human rights population and migration Alejandro Encías presented uh a new report um that has been uh created that has been uh written uh with cooperation from many different government agencies from different expert um bodies the people have been studying this case um and he established in this uh report that there was uh that there is a uh, responsibility of Enrique Peña Nieto um that there is clear links between the local drug cartel and the national army um and and that the army has refused to hand over crucial evidence to actually get to the bottom of this so um once again the struggle for justice in Ayotzinapa continues um 
Andres Manuel has one more year in office, so many people are hoping and putting pressure on uh, the fact that they, they really need uh, to get justice in this case. This was a case that had international repercussion. Um, many people across the world know about the 43 from Ayotzinapa. If they can't actually get truth about what happened, if there can be no justice, if Enrique Peña Nieto cannot be brought uh, to justice in this case, the members of the army that had participation in this, what does it say for the tens of thousands of victims of forced disappearances in Mexico. This is a huge, um, this is a problem on a huge scale in the country. Um, and it, again, requires the cooperation of many, many different uh, agencies, many who want to protect themselves to enjoy this impunity. Um, but of course, the struggle continues. And I think it's it's really laudable, um, this determined, uh, this determination of the parents, of the family members, who have continued, despite suffering this horrific loss, who have continued to be on the streets, occupying uh, the plazas uh, and demanding truth and justice in this case. A very important case. Lots of families seized on the tragedy that took place nine years ago. Um, new tragedies, Prashant, on the border of Niger in the southwest. Um, big attack, soldiers killed. Uh, what's been happening in Niger? since the coup d'etat against Bazoum, now with French troops leaving and so on? Well, Vijay, we're actually across two months uh, since the coup. And uh, it's kind of a <clears throat> landmark moment, actually, a couple of days ago when France finally announced that its ambassador, who had no real diplomatic authorization anymore to continue in that country, but was continuing as some kind of symbol of French defiance or whatever, was, uh, you know, Macron announced that the French ambassador would leave the 1,500 soldiers uh, France had in Niger would also leave. And it's in some senses, it marks uh, and pretty much uh, an end to, I wouldn't say end, end entirely because French soldiers are still there, for instance, in a country like Chad. But, uh, you know, it marks definitely the end of a chapter in what France has been trying to do in the Sahel region as a whole. Now, important to remember that the uh, demand for the de departure of both the ambassador and the French troops is very central uh, as far as the coup in Niger was concerned. The authorities made that demand very soon after coming to power. Uh, more importantly, people have been on the streets continuously uh, presenting that very same uh, demand that the French troops leave because while uh, the French came to the Sahel region in 2013 and 14, you know, and specifically with Operation Barkhane, what is called Operation Barkhane, and the setting up of what was called the G5 Sahel Group. Uh, their stated aim was to sort of combat uh, extremist groups. But over the years, there's been no, there's been any escalation in violence. There have been many accusations of atrocities by French soldiers. All this uh, has made France very extremely unpopular. We talked about this on the show before. The wave of coups across the Sahel region, which, you know, the latest one being the coup in Niger, there is talk of, uh, we have an article from uh, Pawan Kulkarni again talking about the situation in Chad as well, where there is a very strong undercurrent of resistance uh, to French forces, to the presence of France, to the fact that the current military junta leader, Mahmoud Debi, is completely supported by France. Massive pro protests took place even just uh, at the beginning of September, and uh, the, the, the forces of Chad actually shot had those protesters. So this anti-French sentiment is pretty, pretty, pretty much taking the taking over the entire region. So no surprise that France was forced to withdraw. Uh, however, the question nonetheless does remain that what lies ahead for these countries which have successfully managed to expel the French forces, the 
countries of Mali, of Burkina Faso, of Niger, for instance. We know that they formed the Alliance of Sahel States recently, which has a security dimension. But I think it's uh, all these countries in their own ways are facing uh, security threats, which are in some ways existential. We saw attacks in Mali taking place over time. We saw uh, attacks in Niger taking place, like the one you mentioned. And of course, it was interesting that Mali pointed out in the Security Council that uh, you know they would not let another Libya take place, uh, not the Security Council, the UN General Assembly, they would not let another Libya take place in Niger. Uh, you know, bringing, trying to bring back, mem- trying to bring back uh, popular memory to the fact that it is the, the NATO offensive in Libya, which led to this crisis uh, in the first place. So very important that that point was made very strongly uh, by Mali. But I think for all these countries now, there is definitely this question or this challenge of how they are going to sort of uh, you know, deal with this uh, insurgencies, that various insurgencies that are taking place. The West African People's Organization, which is a uh, you know an organization of people's movements in the region, they've issued a statement after the Alliance of Sahel States was formed. They've presented some interesting suggestions, and a key aspect of that has been the question of how do you sort of empower the population itself? How do you bring people into the process of these uprisings uh, itself? and you know, make them a part of this process. So that's really a challenge which uh, these countries will have, the, the military juntas in these countries will have to address as well. So all in all, very you know, delicately poised situation in each of these countries. They have, made, uh, they, they have definitely taken the first step and a very important step in expelling a key cause of the problem. But uh, of course, uh, the other challenges in terms of security definitely remain. Well, that war in Libya was prosecuted principally by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, uh, led by the French, really, who are not under direct NATO military command. Um, NATO is in the news in East Asia. Um, Before the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, the Japanese um, uh, Prime Minister, uh, the Japanese Ambassador to Washington, uh, uh, Koji Tomita, the foreign minister, Yoshimasa Hayashi, all of them said that after the Vilnius meeting in, in, in Lithuania, NATO would open a liaison office in Tokyo. Pretty um, strong language coming from the Japanese government. Now, it is also true that uh, Fumio Kishida, then prime minister, um, attended, sorry, Fumio Kishida, the current prime minister, attended the NATO summit in June 2022. Uh, that was a big move. And in 2019, uh, Japan had appointed an ambassador to NATO. Japan's ties with NATO have been really growing. This talk of the liaison office was pretty provocative. A lot of pushback came immediately from the Chinese government saying, look, you can't build a NATO office in Japan. It's out of the question. Um, this, you know, sort of put the hair up at the back of the neck of several European countries. For instance, the French, uh, the French were just being booted out of the Sahel region. Um, Prashant, you just said that perhaps next stop is Chad. Um, the French uneasy about antagonizing the Chinese because Airbus had just signed a big deal with the Chinese government to supply China with Airbus aircraft. So Mr. Macron hesitated and others joined him saying, well, this time perhaps we won't build a liaison office, NATO liaison office in Japan. It's also true the Japanese are are a little anxious because they feel uneasy about their reliance principally on the United States for security guarantees. 
the fact that the United States they feel is a fickle friend in these times as US hegemony itself is pretty fragile. The United States overstretched around the world. Even uh, the US kind of pressure campaign on China seems to be letting up a little bit. So the Japanese themselves quite anxious about their security umbrella from the United States sought a umbrella from NATO didn't work. Well, now it looks like, and this is a very important report that has come out um, in, um, in Nikkei Asia, that Japan has decided that 33 of its airports and ports will be upgraded for defense use. That means civilian airports uh, across the country, close to Russia, for instance, in the northern uh, Rukyu Islands, uh, down to Okinawa and so on, the Japanese are upgrading their civilian infrastructure for military. Uh, this is something that we are going to pay attention to because it might have all kinds of meanings. Again, close watch from North Korea, from China, from Russia. What is Japan up to? You've been listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. Show number 146 next week. Yeah.